Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast. Welcome. And I have to tell you, I can see that someone's had their dose of kombucha this morning because he's sitting opposite me, positively glowing. <laughs> I'm kombuchaed up, baby. You are, quite clearly. <laughs> partly that, partly What's that. What's it done to you? Uh, but the, the other reason I'm bouncing off the walls <laughs> is, is I'm just so, so excited by what we've got coming up in this episode, which is um, a mind-bending trip into the microbial realms uh, to explore how wine can be good for us, courtesy of an exclusive interview with the world-famous Professor Tim Spector. Um, This is just one of the things he has to say. My advice to wine lovers is uh, keep loving wine. Don't just stick with the same wine. Get out there try the hundreds or thousands of different uh, grape varieties that we generally don't enjoy. Let's get those rare ones back on the map again, because each of those could be helping you nourish really healthy gut microbes inside you and improve your health. So an invitation, actually, no, an order, doctor's orders. um, Doctor's orders. Doctor's orders to explore and enjoy different kinds of wine because it's good for us. On so many levels. Amazing. Um, Yeah. This episode is a must-listen, whether you're a wine lover or not, frankly. It's just cutting-edge stuff, and it's going to blow your mind. Um, Here's something else Tim says. I think this whole space is going to explode in the next uh, five or ten years. And and so we'll be seeing wines and beers that we couldn't, couldn't really have dreamt of. Wines we could never have dreamt of. Now that is intriguing. Mm. I'm loving where mm. this is going. In mm. fact, it's all getting very futuristic rather quickly. Mm. But I think it's perhaps worth stepping back for a moment, isn't it, to explain okay. the context mm. and why we wanted to do this episode in the first place. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Sorry, just having a bit of a fanboy moment there, I think. <laughs> you <laughs> you are a big anyway, fan, anyway, okay. So <laughs> I think it's so. fair to say the issue of wine and health is one that's intrigued us over the years, isn't it? Um, yeah. As has food, you know, a subject that's very close to our hearts, as regular listeners will know. And we've covered both on the podcast and will no doubt be doing more in the future too. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Tim Spector had come up in both contexts. So mainly food, I think it's fair to say. It's one of the leading experts on the microbiome, uh, this revolutionary new way of understanding how what we eat and drink affects our health. Yeah, so Um, I mean, we'll come on to the, I think, the microbiome in a moment, won't Mm. we? But before that, is it fair to say Tim Spector came to particular prominence um, during the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I mean, for some people... I guess yes. Um, so Tim is—he's is, he's a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. I've said that very slowly. Uh, there's a reason why. Um, basically, he studies why populations get diseases. Um, I think that's what it is. And, and, and to be fair, he does many things. But one of the key things he's done is um, something called Twins UK. You know, the world's largest identical twin study. Um, those studies sort of led him to appreciate how human health and life is about more than just genetics, you know, given how even genetically identical twins can be very different in terms of health. Which is amazing. Mm, I find mm, that fascinating. mm. But I think that's what led him, wasn't it, to look at the microbiome? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So on the back of his research, he set up the personalised nutrition initiative, ZOE. uh, And when COVID hit, he rapidly repurposed ZOE, uh, which led to the largest active cohort study in the world with millions of participants. Uh, This helped to sort of to understand the illness and, and how to protect against it. Uh, and he was actually given an OBE in 2020 for services to the COVID response. And he's also um, written books, hasn't he? Um, yeah. Which is actually how we 
got to know his work. Exactly, yeah. So his latest one we've got here is is Food for Life, uh, The New Science of Eating Well. Uh, before that, it was uh, Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. I uh, particularly <laughs> love that one. Good um, time reading that was, These it? are our must-reads because they just totally change our understanding of health and diet in, in, in a good way, you know, in, in a sort of intriguing way. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and he does touch on wine in these books, particularly in Spoon Fed, where he sort of he sort of dedicates a chapter to dispelling the myth that drinking alcohol is always bad for you. And of course, one other book in a, in a similar arena um, that wine lovers may already own, we certainly do, mm, uh, is Professor Roger Corder's The Wine Diet, mm. actually published back in 2007, uh, which advocates small amounts of red wine daily as a key to good health and long life. Mm, yeah, so a similar sort of arena. But I think we'll come back to that in in due course but let's get straight into the interview um because that's really the heart of this episode so i met with tim at his offices in the twins uk department at st thomas's hospital in london and and this being downtown london uh, the inevitable building work was going on in the background so apologies for that uh, i also think tim's phone kept buzzing now i remember it he's a very busy man isn't he so uh, uh, please excuse Chaos. all of those Chaos. But, but we did have a lovely view over the t- it's one of the nicest offices in London because you've got this wonderful view over the Thames to the Houses of Parliament. So, you know, you may also hear the gentle chimes of Big Ben in the background. That's by way of recompense. Mm. That's what I can offer. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> Tim, the fascinating words of Tim Spector. Anyway, I started by asking Tim to explain the microbiome. Microbiome is a word for the community of microorganisms, which are little bugs that you need a microscope to see that live in our, predominantly our lower intestine. They're everywhere in our body, but mainly microbiome refers to the ones in our gut. And there are hundreds of trillions of them, and they consist of bacteria, archaea, viruses, fungi, and even parasites. And essentially, they're like a virtual organ in our body, like having an extra liver, because we now know that these guys are not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs in the dark, they are like uh, mini pharmacies converting the food and drink we get into incredible chemicals that keep us alive, boost our immune system, uh, help us through healthy aging, fighting infections, fighting cancers, uh, fighting all kinds of disease, as well as regulating our appetite and even our mood. So they're super important. So you've touched on a lot there. An extra liver sounds great to a wine lover, uh, particularly. But you've, you've talked about all parts of our body. I suppose it's tempting to think of the microbiome as residing in the gut and just affecting the gut. But this has implications for, for, for all of our health, including our mental health. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. It, we really can't live without gut microbes. It alters our stress levels, our anxiety levels, our appetite. And it's shown to be very important in... Uh, depression and, and anxiety so you can actually by changing the gut microbes you can really alter your mood and uh, uh, mental illness is yeah, really a, a pivotal part of and it has a great interplay with our gut microbes so it's really important for everyone to understand you know how to really nourish our gut microbes. How long have we been aware of the importance of the microbiome? We've known about it for about 20 years, uh, but it's only really, I think, come to prominence in the last 10 years. I've been writing about it for about 12 years, and I've just seen a gradual increase in knowledge and understanding. 
people realizing it isn't a fad that's going to go away. And we gradually replace the textbook's view of bacteria and bugs as harmful into something that are predominantly helpful for us. And I think it's that shift that has now sort of reached public consciousness now, you know, and people uh, are embracing these ideas of the benefits of bacteria, just as in, you know, um, fermenters and uh, wine and beer makers have known about these these benefits we're starting to see the similarity in within our own bodies that we didn't think was possible and also the similarities that also occur in our soil so i think we're seeing how biology is sort of unifying and that things that we thought were just some rare exception are actually more the norm in broad brush terms how does what we eat and drink affect our microbiome are we in effect eating to feed the microbiome rather than ourselves well, we're doing both. So we have to eat to survive. And some of the food we eat doesn't go to our, our gut microbes. Um, so most ultra-processed foods we eat, um, refined sugars, etc., just get absorbed high up in the, in the intestine, doesn't really go anywhere near the gut microbes, and goes into our bloodstream and gives us energy. Then you've got other things like fats and uh, fiber and protein which go further down and take longer to get broken down and they interact with our gut microbes and microbes take some of that as energy and the rest they they convert into a digestible form so that the body can have it so they sort of share it out equally but there are some foods that we ingest that only our microbes can really use and I think that's really important to understand and, and one of them is something I'm sure we can discuss more of is polyphenols which are these defense chemicals in plants that we used to think there was some magic way that they they worked in our body as antioxidants we now know that the vast majority of them can't really work without the microbes being the the sort of intermediary <laughs> Let me get this right. The microbiome is like having an extra liver. That's definitely music to my ears. Um, but it is, it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it, the way he describes microbes as being like mini pharmacies. They don't just affect our, our physical health, but, but also our mental health. Absolutely. I mean, they're even talking about the psychobiome. Um, and and, and, and there have been intriguing links made between, for example, autism and the microbiome, which I find pretty mind-blowing. Mm. Um, you know, in, in, in Food for Life, Tim describes nutrition as the most exciting and fast-moving area of science today. Um, he also describes people as half-human, half-bug, uh, because apparently there are more bacterial cells than human cells in our bodies. Well, I mean, bit, how mad is that? It's a bit of a weird thought, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and, and of course, one of his big things is how personalised the microbiome is. Yeah, yeah. And now he says, all humans share 99.7% of our gene variants with each other. I see, even that I find... I know. So we're all really? incredibly similarly, similar yes. gen genetically. Apparently, mad. we're all on average fifth cousins. <laughs> I know. Oh I know. Let's I not go there. It's just that. another no, weird no. thought. Let's just <laughs> let's just pause not. that. The point we're making, really, though, is is you know while we share ninety nine point seven percent of our gene variants, we only share about twenty five percent of our gut microbiome genes. So actually, our microbiome makes us more unique than our human genes. 
again, we get into territory where my mind is properly blown. Mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. he says this is what makes it all fun. You know, we all respond to food and drink in individual ways. We're not robots who all respond in the same way as, you know, for example, government health advice would have you think, or equally, for that matter, you know, how companies selling supplements would want you to believe. Yeah, he's not a big fan of supplements, is he? <laughs> To be fair. <laughs> no, no. Um, one of his big I'm things right is, you know, you, you can't reduce the complexity of food and drink to individual components, which you can then flog. Um, we'll come on to this. But, you know, he, he writes how poor diet is estimated to account for 50% of common diseases. So that's just your diet. Yeah, think about that for a diet. second. 50% of common yeah. diseases. Yeah, yeah. Your diet. It's massive. Mm. We all kind of know this intuitively, mm. but I think we've been kind of in- tempted to move away from it. But yeah. it's, you know, it's But I central. suppose what makes it difficult is, you know, in order to personalise a diet, that that's so complicated, isn't it? It, it can be, but, yeah. but we can, there are sort of relatively easy starting points, mm. I think, to give ourselves mm. the best chance. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, then it costs nearly $1 billion to bring a new drug to the market. But we spend a fraction of that on research into diets. Which could yield, you know, huge results. Yeah, yeah. But it's presumably, madness. I mean, you you can't make the same amount of profit out of fruit and veg, can you? You can't. Exactly. That's the conundrum. Mm. Um, but they're exactly what we need. You know, Tim recommends eating 30 different plants per week, plus a small amount of fermented foods and drinks, because that nourishes your microbiome, uh, partly through polyphenols or, or polyphenols, these, these chemicals that plants make in response to environmental stress, like heat or sunlight or drought or pest and disease. Mm. Uh, uh, and they're found, of course, mainly in grape skins and pips. When we're talking about wine. When we're talking, talking about, about wine. wine. They're also in, in lots of other plants. Um, the darker the colours, apparently, the more polyphenol content generally. Mm. Uh, and that's, of course, what I wanted to quiz Tim about in more detail, you know, just how wine affects our microbiome. There have been several studies, some in Spain and some in mice and some in a few in humans, and they've all suggested there might be a beneficial effect on our gut microbes. Um, about five years ago, we did, I think, the largest study uh, done on think, over 15,000 people uh, from uh, groups from our twins here in the UK, uh, combined with uh, a Belgian cohort and an American cohort, and we looked at uh, general reports of alcohol drinking, any any drinks, and we had their gut microbiome results. We knew how well they were healthy guts or not. And by healthy guts, we meant diverse set of um, microbes, so many different species. And overall, alcohol drinkers did worse than non-alcohol drinkers. So definitely drinking alcohol is not a, something we can recommend for your health. But within that group, we found that uh, wine drinkers were uh, the odd ones out, that we found that people drinking one to two glasses of red wine had healthier, significantly healthier gut microbes than people who didn't. And we found that white wine was slightly negative or close to average. It certainly wasn't beneficial. And we do know that white wine has a third less polyphenols than red wine because <clears throat> obviously the the skin is in contact with the the uh, the liquid for much longer in red wine production if we had enough data we'd probably show that rosé was somewhere in the middle um but maybe orange wine uh, white wine maybe yes skins might exactly the normal white wine presumably. i think so yes uh, we didn't actually have that <laughs> level of detail um and but I, I think you you can basically do a correlation between the the length of time, 
the, the, you know, you're getting those grape skins um, soaked to absorb um, what's going on. Uh, that was interesting. So that, uh, and but there was a dose response effect. So the uh, people that like to drink um, half a bottle of wine or more uh, has start to have a negative impact. So the window only seemed to be between one and two glasses of red wine, which sort of makes sense because we don't think it's the alcohol per se that's helpful. And it's actually, we know that's toxic for the body. And if you give too much alcohol to gut microbes, they don't like it. They only like the sort of byproduct. Uh, the alcohol does seem to be more important though, because there've been a few studies comparing grape juice with people drinking grape juice with, with red wine. And the uh, results are not as good. And you might say, well, why is that? Because you're not getting the alcohol, you're getting the grapes. The fermenting process itself basically modifies all the chemicals in the grape and produces greater complexity of polyphenols than just um, having grapes and sugar. And so that, that was the sort of lesson that generally every time you ferment something, you increase the complexity not only of the taste, but also the chemicals. And so you're modifying it. And it's that process that seems to be important. So it sort of shows that if someone could create a fully fermented red wine and really lower the alcohol, they really would have a health drink on their hands. So yeah, so whereas grape juice might not be so healthy, presumably de-alcoholized wine might end up being more healthy because it's gone through the fermentation process and then had the alcohol taken out. Yes, I think depending on how you did it and uh, whether you managed to conserve the polyphenols without the extraction process of you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, yes. So, But certainly that's something to watch. And in a way, similarities with coffee and uh, decaffeinated coffee. We've um, got similar results um, when we looked at coffee, which is a fermented bean. Uh, and again... The bean itself doesn't, uh, you need the fermenting process to increase those polyphenols. But most of the epidemiology studies show that the decaf version, uh, and it might vary by method, uh, produces nearly as good a health benefit. So I think, yeah, that anyone listening who's trying to develop some really healthy wines, uh, I think it's a really exciting area. Mm, that's a very, very great tip there. Um, can we go into a little bit more detail about polyphenols, um, how they're formed, but what, more importantly, what they do in the body? Um, there's been a lot of talk, of course, in the past about resveratrol in red wine. Um, there's also been talk about procyanidins, uh, partly by um, Roger Corder in his book, The Wine Diet. Um, can we yeah, go into a little bit more detail about different polyphenols and what... Uh, do we sort of know... What are the, the, the compounds in particular which are having the greatest effect? Uh, the answer is no, uh, because there are literally thousands of polyphenols, most of which we barely given a name to, let alone understand what they do. And so we've been fixated with a few that came out early, the sort of low-hanging fruit, like resveratrol, that um, you know went on to... Great success that if you know if you gave lots of resveratrol to poor old mice, um, you could reduce their heart problems and uh, potentially make them live longer. Um, but it it's a great lesson in our in our hubris really that we think we can explain 
all the mysteries of wine with one magic chemical. And the supplements industry then produced resveratrol tablets that you could take in, instead of, I think it worked out, you had to drink about six bottles of wine a, a day to get the levels that they thought worked in mice uh, to give you that heart benefit, which would clearly not be very beneficial, um, even with the best liver in the world. And so, and resveratrol has now just been a subject of a big meta-analysis to show that of the 20-odd studies looking at it, it has no benefit above placebo um, for heart in humans. So again, you know, what has a great story, a sort of media headline. Um, we've discovered what it is, the French paradox. It's all this magic one chemical and we put it in a pill and we flog it to make, you know, hundreds of millions. Uh, it turns out to be just another sham. And again, it, it, it tells us that we can't reduce the complexity of food into saying, I've got the answer. And I think we have to embrace the complexity and try and ways to use all those polyphenols together, which may only work in combination. And the idea that it's, it all comes down to one is ridiculous, really. And um, it should be a good lesson for us. So, you know, using the whole food, it's, it's very equivalent to, you know, trying to say, well, the only good thing about fruit and vegetables is vitamin C. A vitamin C tablet, put that in a trial, doesn't work, doesn't help anyone. But if you give people fruit and vegetables, it does work. Because again, you've got 30,000 different chemicals in, in plants that you're, you don't understand yet, and they must interact with each other. So the polyphenols, coming back to your question, these, these thousands of polyphenols and um, polyphenolic compounds and used to be called antioxidants and it's it's a very complicated chemical um, system and hierarchy but essentially we think that the vast majority of these um, are used by our gut microbes so the, the microbes use them as, as fuel energy source primarily and then they often convert them into other chemicals so our body itself can't uh, break these down easily themselves and these are the defense chemicals that plants have to generally um, protect the plant against the wind against uh, sun and the often they say the harsher the conditions the the more the sun the more the wind uh, the greater the temperature var gradient, um, the more the polyphenols in, in generally in plants. And there are people now trying to recreate those conditions, actually to boost polyphenols in things like lettuces and uh, other ones by artificially creating wind tunnels and things like this. And they've managed to do that. So the same could be true also of you know of people trying to in the future develop high polyphenol wines, putting them in areas where they're more stressed. And then they're going to actually create more of these compounds. And of course, it's the polyphenols that do give the astringency. They do give that, that tannins are polyphenols. And it's this bitter taste, the astringency, that, that sort of grape taste on the tongue all comes from these chemicals that are key for our microbes uh, uh, to use and produce all these other good compounds that we still know very little about.
So almost that tannic, that astringency, you can almost sense when you're tasting a wine if it might have a high polyphenol content. Um, and I suppose the colour would be partly to do with that as well. And, and thinking about high-stressed vines, I think there's already uh, vines in, in plenty of these places which have the natural stresses. Um, I always remember Pierre Antinori saying, the vine must be Catholic because it loves to suffer. To go back to something you mentioned earlier, though, and you mentioned in your books about food, um, that actually sometimes you can buy a fermented food or drink, but actually it's lost a lot of the microbes because of the processing and because of the fact that you might be stored in vinegar or whatever. It's almost aseptic by the time it reaches you, the consumer. Is it the same for wine? Do we want to be, if we're looking for wines that are beneficial for our health, do we want to find the kind of wines that will have a lot of that, will have, let's say, the minimal intervention post-fermentation before it reaches us? For example, natural wine would be a good example of this. You know, a classic example of a low intervention wine that's not fined, it's not filtered, minimal sulfites to, to control the microbes. Is this the kind of wine that we should be looking for as well? In theory, yes, but I don't think there's any great hard data to back it up. I don't, I'm not aware of any data of comparing, say, organic natural wines versus traditional wines, their effects even on mice or let alone humans. Um, you know, and sulfites have been around for millennia. And we obviously, most of the wines drunk are traditional rather than, you know, the newer wave natural ones. And so we're seeing a benefit there. So I think it's a possibility that, that they are um, healthier for us, but um, I don't think there's any, any evidence of it. And it'd be quite hard studies to do. I think you have to do some large studies to, to show a difference, I imagine. Um, clearly, the less doctoring in general of our foods, the less additives that are considered not natural that our microbes might object to, the better. Um, but I'm not particularly worried about sulfites. Um, people ask me about this, but you know, I think it sounds like our microbes are pretty able to deal with small amounts of these things. And the other interesting area is is sort of whether you've got any yeasts or anything around. There is some very new data showing that sometimes some Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae is the beer yeast even when it's dead, might have some beneficial properties on our gut wall. And so um, if that's true for other other the, the microbes used in wine, then you might actually want a sort of more sedimentous um, wine with lots of dead microbes at the bottom. That, you know, that's a possibility. They could be beneficial as well. So this is very recent research, but I think it, it means that the idea we had before that only live microbes are, are good might not be always true. And so it's possible that some of the, the benefits of um, uh, wine could be uh, from the sediment. Fascinating. Uh, would you therefore encourage winemakers to do wild ferments or natural ferments, encouraging ambient yeast to work on the ferments as well as then, even if they then want to add a strain of a cultivated strain of commercial yeast? that would be a better approach than, let's say, inoculating with sulfur to try and eradicate as many other yeasts as possible and then just throwing in the commercial yeasts? I think so, yes. I think if they can... Obviously, it's harder to manage wines like that. Uh, get a bit wild, don't they? But um, in, in theory, if you've got a diversity of different microbes, e even if you then pasteurise them or, or kill them off, 
it sort of watch this space. But I mean, I think don't assume that every every you know dead yeast is use is useless. Um, and there are companies now actually marketing it as a health health product for people with digestive problems. Tim, you talk a lot about how individual how individual we are and how individual how we react differently to different foods and drinks. Could it be the case that some people are good with wine and other people aren't? And taking that further, that certain wines suit certain people better than others? I mean, could we sort of, could our wine diets be ultimately personalised? Yeah, I think any, any part of our diet could be personalised if we get enough data and we get to understand it. But to my mind, taste is, and preference is still going to be preferable to having something that you know, might suit your microbes. So you're having, it means you're having wine as, only as medicine then. And so you'd have a wine you don't like, but you know some test said it was good for you, so you have to drink it. Um, I think I imagine taste preferences would outweigh the differences in um, in outcome. Although it's interesting though, because a lot of people now are coming to me and saying, "Oh, I don't, you know, you, you keep saying red wine's good and white wine's bad. I, you know, I don't, I don't really like red wine. I mean, I'm a white wine drinker, and you know, how to get people to switch? But some of them are saying, "Well, I, you know, I, I've." I started having a small amount and gradually working up to get that. And I, and I say, well, put it in the fridge, you know, um, as the Spanish do, and close your eyes. And basically, you know, a lot of tests say people can't tell the difference at, the, at, the at, a, at a chilled temperature. And um, I think there will be some differences, but it, I think it, it's more the response to the alcohol is, is going to be very personalized. I think the taste... And whether how you uh, appreciate bitter tastes is more personalised. Um, to my mind, there, there, there's big factors. Mm, yeah, and you also make a point in your books of actually wine is important for enjoyment, for socialising, and, and not just all about health. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's hugely important for, for yeah, its social element, um, and you know is one of the main reasons of the of the Mediterranean bias is brought about by that reason to go down every day to the cafe and have a glass with friends is as much the drinking that one glass of red wine as it is meeting up with friends. You know, that social network is, is sharing a bottle is very important. Hasn't there just been some new research about exercise and good relationships being the secrets to better health in later life? Yeah, yeah. I think in the British Medical Journal, uh, it, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, and wine could be seen to have a role in that, as Tim intimates. Um, personally, I'm just a bit miffed that the positive health effects of red wine are reversed if you drink more than a couple of glasses. <laughs> That's really gone to the heart of me. I know. And, and that um, white wine doesn't have as much of a positive effect on the microbiome as, as I know, red I know. Uh, gutting. I know. Well, if you'll pardon the pun. Oh, I know. <laughs> I don't think that stops <laughs> like us. I don't gutting. think it stops us, does it? I don't think it stops Tim. But you know, no. Just boo all round there. <laughs> Not boo too much. Ooh. We can still have a bit of red. We can. And, and, you know, orange wine could orange. ride to the rescue here. It could. It could be your, your, your Ooh, replacement. Like that, for, like that. Or maybe rosé. There's yeah. always rosé, isn't there? There's always rosé. Rose. There's always rosé. Um, and, indeed, you know, hazy, line, hazy wine, hazy whatever wine. the colour, hazy yeah. wine. Really Which interesting we often what, think what, is, what, is um, not, what, not 
not good for us, but it, it really is. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So what Tim was saying about yeasts, even sort of deactivated or dead yeast potentially being beneficial. So, you know, we might need to rethink sediment and, and, and decanting and all that sort of stuff. That but to we be do frank, I think there's a lot of potential rethinking to do. Mm, mm. You know, it reminds me of when you said um, we need to replace the textbook's view of bugs as harmful into the things that are helpful for us. Yeah, which yeah. was what we were just talking about being mm. part bug, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and along the, the same lines, I know we're going to come on to wines of the future shortly, but it's really interesting what he said about the importance of fermentation itself, you mm. know, and its role in yeah. increasing mm. the complexity of polyphenols. So a fermented wine, for example, with the abs- alcohol subsequently taken out, could be the ultimate health drink. Mm, interesting how he said that, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, just needs to taste nice. It does. That's it the challenge at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. so to Tastes recap like wine. on... Well, <laughs> yes and no, because it may be that the future is the dealkalized wine is the base and actually it's got other botanicals mixed in. I think personally, what I'm tasting, mm. that's the way it's going. So Fair it might enough. not actually taste like wine. It might taste like something else. Okay. At least maybe in the short term. Yeah. Who, knows? Who knows? Anyway, more yeah. experimentation needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's a very exciting area. So to... Recap on where we are so far. Our microbiome is critical to our well-being and moderate consumption of red wine with its beneficial polyphenols is good for our microbiome. So far, so good. Now, the obvious next step, given we're talking about wine and well-being, is to actually drink some wine and actively benefit our health while podcasting. How about that? Any excuse. (laughs) Anyway, we've got a couple of bottles here. Of course we have. Now, now, Tim wasn't being drawn on a, if you like, reductionist approach to specific wines or individual compounds. But given our subject matter, it does make sense to choose wines that are rich in polyphenols. And in this regard, we were led, weren't we, by Professor Roger Corder's book that we mentioned earlier, The Wine Diet, in which he, he identifies a couple of wine styles as being naturally high in beneficial polyphenols, particularly mm. procyanidins. Mm. And among them is Madiran from southwest France. Madiran, yeah. Madiran. The uh, Tanat grape variety looms large in the wine diet because, you know, as the name suggests, it's quite tannic and dark. Uh, and that's often a sign of high polyphenol content. Um, and Madiran was a region Roger Corder just singles out in this sense. You know, the challenge, obviously, with Tanat is... Of course, to tame those tannins and, and polyphenols and make it taste okay, you know, some of these wines, they're just too much. They're just too wild. They're too out there. They're mm. too kind of crazy. But we did find some gems, didn't we? Oh, we did. We did. So mm. our favourite, and so, it really was, um, mm. the Clos Bastet Madaran mm. 2019. Yeah. Now, this mm. is intense. Mm. It's inky. It's got quite firm, chalky tannins, but mm. it's well-rounded. It's got lovely energy. I think that was oh. the big thing about it. And then yeah. sort of complexity of floral, herbal, meaty mm. notes, mm. juicy dark fruit, really well-made and, and actually as well, really good with food. Now, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> it's definitely not a wine that tastes any prisoners, is it? It sort of puts hairs in your chest. Mm. It, it's intense. It's brooding and rugged. Yeah. You know, you can almost feel it being good for you when you drink it. Um, now, I did actually take <laughs> along a couple of wines for Tim to taste, uh, and this was one of them. Um, I can report he was he was a bit <laughs> circumspect at first. Uh, it was a bit early in the morning, wasn't it? be because it was 11 in the morning in a hospital, yeah. Yeah. to be fair to the man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, But he did say, he did say it would be lovely with a meal, oh, yeah. Yeah. which anyway. I think we would agree with. Oh, we would, we would.
good. And it's, it's, it's I mean, that, so that one's anything from sort of 22 to 28 pounds. It's at the Wine Story Club at Blenheim Vintners, um, but also available in, in Europe and the US uh, yeah. and just a delicious wine. Nice. Now, another one we loved was the Chateau Montes mm. 2016 mm. Madaran, uh, about 30 pounds at Noble Green and also mm. very widely available internationally, this one. Uh, it's a different style, a bit mm. more rustic, a bit more... I'd say traditional tasting. Uh, there's a bit more age there, but it's got a bit more swagger. It's got mm. kind of leathery, savoury, muscular, but but really likeable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's plenty of fruit there, isn't there? But it's mm. it's, it's sort of slightly dried fruit, bit of age. Mm. There's a fair old tannic whack, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but it has just. I know it's got really good character. Maybe it just needs. Maybe it needs drinking up. Maybe it's sort of fully mature. Drinking so. now, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I it's don't think mature. it's one for keeping, is it? Also, on that note, apparently younger reds may be better in the sense fewer polyphenols, polyphenols have precipitated out. I don't know if Tim would approve of that logic, but it's certainly something that Roger Corder mm. says. Anyway, mm. I mean, this is really tasty stuff. And, and, and another one to throw in the mix here isn't actually from Madurant, but it's made from Tanat uh, with a bit of Pinink and Cabernet Sauvignon. It's Pinink. Pinink. Uh, it's the L'Empreinte de Saint-Mont Rouge 2018. That's from uh, Plémont. It's really sort of inky and dark. And it's, it's great value at 14.95. That's from Corny and Barrow, but also, you know, widely available in Europe. Now, you can, of course, find Tanat in Uruguay. Mm. Uh, and those are well worth trying. There are some yeah. brilliant, aren't there, modern Uruguayan mm. tanats. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and another wine that's mentioned in terms of high polyphenol content is Malbec from Argentina. And this is where the where the high altitude desert conditions naturally generate high levels of polyphenols. Mm. So we also tried, mm. in the interests that's of true. experimentation, yeah. yep. we also tried and enjoyed a, a Catena yeah. High Mountain Vines Malbec 2017, which is a more generous, polished, creamy sort of style, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And that's another wine that's available sort of truly internationally. It's also pretty good value, about 15 to 20 quid. Um, and, and I can report that Tim Spector liked this one, uh, though he did contextualise his preference by saying... It's easier to drink in the morning than the Madaran. It's a morning Madaran. No, no, it's not a morning it's Madaran. A it's morning, morning Malbec. A morning, morning Malbec. And then we have a mid-afternoon ma- Madaran. Uh, right. <laughs> right. I think I think that's enough of drinking our way to health. Shall we hear the last bits of the last bit of the mm. interview with with Tim, uh, which contains some pretty eye-opening moments, doesn't it? It really does. So you know, as we know, there is conflicting advice about alcohol and wine intake. Some research talks about positive effects on heart disease. Other research focuses on increased risk, for example, of cancer. We're told small amounts are good, but then we're told there's no safe level of alcohol consumption. So which is it? You know, where's the truth in all of this? And does the microbiome have a role to play? Well, it's true there is no totally safe amount of alcohol, but that depends on your definition of safe. I worked out that if I was having one glass um, of wine a day, red wine a day, and I was worried about my risk of cancer or, or one health event, a stroke or cancer or something. I'd have to be, you know, drinking for about sort of 2,000 years before that would kick in. So it's, uh, you know, someone's done these calculations, but they're not sort of real life ones. So I think that's, that's, that's one thing to, to get across. And of course, it's very hard for anyone to write in a medical journal to say anything sort of positive about alcohol without getting a huge um, kickback uh, to say, well, you're promoting unhealthy behavior and alcohol, you know, kills so many people and it's tragic for, you know, mental health and breaking up families and violence. And yeah, all true. But 
uh, as you know from my writing, I'm always I want to tell the truth and just you know not, not worry about being necessarily politically correct and just give people the information and facts. And um, so I think it's just telling people you know um, the facts and then then making their own minds up about it. I don't think it's worth telling a teetotaler that they should be drinking wine uh, for their health, although you know comparison studies would suggest that it might help their heart, but it might you know, have other negative effects. Although I think in this range of dose, it's really really tiny and trivial effects. I think it's like any drug that you know this wine is is full of chemicals, and if you get the dose right for you, it's there. There is a sweet spot that's perfect. And you you overdo it, it's it's bad. You know, it causes sleep problems, causes some mental problems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think people need to always look at the dose of what they're drinking, put it into context, um, take some time off drinking, have at least you know one day a week when they're not drinking alcohol, uh, or a month a year, but I think one day a week's better, uh, long long term, and realize that as they age their body will also need different doses as well. So that's that's also important. And it it needs to also be balanced with your diet. And depending on what you're, you're eating, that might affect the speed of absorption and things. When you time it, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence now that drinking wine or alcohol late at night um, gets you to sleep earlier but disturbs your sleep so you have less quality sleep. So really we should be perhaps promoting wine, you know, early on as the aperitif, and in the early stages of the meal, not maybe as much right at the end with the cheese as, as I do and I overdo it uh, because that's really close to when you're into bed. So, you know, there are lots of considerations in how we try and balance the pleasures of wine with, you know, knowing more about those, those sort of health aspects to, so that we can, you know, enjoy it sensibly and, and get all the benefits and really minimise any of the, the side effects. So bring back the long lunch as well, perhaps. Um, yeah, ideally, yes, which is what, you know, they, they do in the Mediterranean still, you know. Um, all the weekends, all their drinking is, is done at lunchtime. Uh, it's really interesting. We seem to have lost that ability, which is a great tragedy, I think. Um, what about talking about damage, the potential for wine to damage us and our microbiome when it's drunk in excess? You know, you said, you know, one... You, half a bottle more maybe you start to lose the the protective effects and also we're all very familiar with hangovers you know is this what are the mechanics behind this is this partly because we're damaging the microbiome and and and, and that's we're feeling the effects of that how does how does that mechanism work well we don't really know i mean our study on on gut health just told us that you your diversity from being improved when you hang one to two glasses of wine goes back towards no difference and then at excess level so above three glasses uh, it goes negative so you're having a perhaps a toxic effect on the gut microbes if they're getting too much alcohol and we know that alcohol is a sterilizing agent so it sort of makes sense that you know you've got to get that dose right and so I think that's probably the main mechanism for the gut of course there's lots of other effects on the body on the brain you know it in in these doses you know it alcohol is a neurotoxin uh, i mean you just got to remember that so it's uh it, you know it, it's a powerful chemical 
stroke drug that we got to, you know, we need to treat with uh, great care and respect. Now, from comments in your latest book, Food for Life, you know, it could be inferred your next book will include some things on drinks. Um, can I ask you that question? Can you comment? Uh, not officially, no, but uh, if no one's listening, I can. No one's um, listening, you're fine. Just <laughs> <give me. laughs> so, yes, there are lots of things I had included in Food for Life um, on uh, particular wines and beers that I think are really interesting that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying to get out of my next book. So um, hopefully it won't all be lost. And uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's many more. There's lots of exciting science uh, around um, particularly modern ways of, of making food, I think, that are going to be really interesting for people in, in, into wine and beers. And which, which I think are going through a real revolution anyway in, in their making, as we understand more about microbes, we understand you know, this and precision fermentation. You know what for thousands of years we've been doing with wine is now being used to you know, do things like replace meat, and uh, and you know I see that within the next five years taking over completely our food system, and so everyone's going to know about fermenting and microbes and the, you know this extra complexity and, and power you get from um, fermenting things not just grapes so I, I, I think this whole space is going to explode in the next uh, five or ten years and, and so we'll be seeing wines and beers that we couldn't couldn't really have dreamt of um, you know we're talking about yes you know you know some of these these wines have high polyphenols but others you know will have all kinds of other chemicals on the label and they might have microbes that are being introduced to produce these particular healthy chemicals in the wine. Um, just like they, you know, they're now producing probiotic beers uh, that have some live microbes in there that um, could have benefits. So yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting. And faking aging and things with chemicals, I think is, is something also very interesting and Genetically modifying um, yeast to um, produce lower alcohol wines is quite, I mean, that's already happening. But I think we're going to see more and more of that as we try and say, okay, how do we get a healthier wine for less alcohol? Um, so people will drink more of it, which is good for business and, you know, potentially good for health. So I think uh, as these technologies and you know, the genetics and the, the gene editing and the fermenting and the precision foods. It's going to be a very exciting time. Um, final question, Tim. What would your advice for wine lovers be? My advice for wine lovers is uh, keep loving wine. I'd still uh, drink wine primarily for the pleasure. But uh, at the back of your mind, think, um, could I be trying different bottles or varieties that might actually be healthier for me and that I might enjoy. And I think the other thing is that diversity is also important. If you take the analogy from foods, having a range of different grape varieties in your diet means that you are going to be helping different gut microbes inside you and you will increase your, your gut health and diversity. So don't just stick with the same wine. Get out there, try, you know, the hundreds or thousands of different uh, grape varieties that we generally don't uh, enjoy. And let's get those rare ones back on the map again because each of those could be helping you nourish really uh, healthy gut microbes inside you and improve your health. 
music to a wine lover's ears. Uh, Professor Tim Spector, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. So, eat, drink red, and be merry, but not too merry. Yeah, yeah. drink red widely, um, but moderately. Um, and then, you know, be aware these things are personal, and it depends what works for you. Uh, at the same time, bear in mind, alcohol is a powerful drug uh, we need to treat with great respect. But it's good to enjoy life at the same time, isn't it? It is. And it maybe, is. as you touched on, we need to revive the concept of the long lunch. You know, I couldn't agree more. I'm a campaigner. I know you I'm couldn't. a campaigner and activist for the long lunch in a very practical way. Uh, oh, anyway, <clears throat> yes, there we are. Done, there we are. We? I was I was also really interested by what he was saying about the future of wine and food involving um, precision fermentation and, and you know, people playing around with microbes and, and chemicals and, and, and new technologies to create sort of new wines and beers. Yeah, I, mean, um, I think he called it um, a, a revolution, didn't mm. he? Exciting times ahead. Indeed. And that is where we must leave it for this episode, though I do feel there may be more on this topic on our wine blast horizon. Mm. Uh, by way of brief summary, take the official advice with a pinch of salt. Red wine can be beneficial to our microbiome and well-being. And as our understanding of fermentation and microbes advances, we may well witness a revolution in food and wine production. You heard it here first. As ever. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a nice rating or review. Uh, I'm sure the sheer altruism of the gesture will be beneficial to your microbiome too. What do you think? I'm <laughs> going be. with that. Must I'm not be. sure Tim would approve. Anyway, uh, details of all the wines we mentioned and more are on the show notes and our website. Thanks to Tim Spector and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.